Strong in the Lord is probably, that, I, I just borrowed that straight off the internet. That's, I think that's a good title for uh, where we're at in this next bit of Ephesians. Paul is still working through uh, amplifying this statement, be filled by the Spirit. He talks about songs and springs and sims of spiritual songs, singing to make a melody of your hearts to the Lord. He talks about submitting to one another in the fear of, God, of Christ, uh, husbands and wives, parents and children, workers and, and employers. And then the next bit is still part of that whole argument. Be filled with the Spirit, ready for battle, to engage in warfare. We're coming to the passage in Ephesians that deals with our warfare as believers. Now, it's usually called spiritual warfare and with all kinds of, you know, in the sky, different things. And it's most often thought about as wrestling with demons. And in fact, even the, the picture that most people have of spiritual warfare is kind of like shooting demons out of the sky. You know, like, like we set up a rocket or a laser and knock them down, you know. And that is as far from what the Bible actually says about spiritual war as I could imagine. So I have a problem with the phrase spiritual warfare. Firstly, it's not a phrase the Bible uses. It never, it never says that in Scripture. The word spiritual in Scripture doesn't refer to our spirit, but to the Holy Spirit, with one exception, which is here in Ephesians 6.12, which refers to spiritual forces or powers of evil. And then, thirdly, spiritual is often used by many people to mean not real, not literal, not physical. So some people call, think of this warfare as being something ethereal rather than real, mystical rather than practical. In other words, it hasn't anything to do with real life. It's just out there, up there. But if we're in a Christian, we're in a battle, we're in a fight of faith. Therefore, this is the Christian's warfare. Not for some superclass of believers, the kind of spiritual SAS of the church, you know, there are no exceptions to this. These scriptures speak to every single one of us. We're all soldiers in this conflict. Amen. You cannot be a Christian and opt out of being a soldier. In fact, let me put that more bluntly. If you don't know that you're a combatant in this war, you're probably already a casualty. You've already been knocked down and knocked out. I'm going to read through the passage, Ephesians, and let me tell you that we're hardly going to get into Ephesians 6 today, and even this morning I felt the Lord say to me, don't rush past verse 10, David, so when Jack's preached next Sunday, the Sunday after, I'll just, I'm just going to do verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his vast strength, just that verse, because how we think about God really, really matters. Finally, and when Paul says finally, he's getting towards the end, but he's not maybe quite at the end. Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. I was delighted to be singing those songs this morning about the greatness of God. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, in other words, other people. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the willpowers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. I'm going to have to explain all that to you in a few weeks' time. This is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. The word stand occurs three times in this passage. Stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, how you think, and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. There's only one weapon there, though there's another one in a minute. The sword of the Spirit, which is God's word, the truth. That's weapon number one. Weapon number two, verse 18, pray. Paul doesn't give an analogy for that one, doesn't give a piece of armor or whatever for it. But it's also a second and only two weapons. Truth and prayer. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert in this like a, like a soldier on watch with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Okay, I think I've pretty much preached that. I've got to go home now. <laughs> All right. I need to descend foundations for us this morning before we even get into the scripture. The nature of the battle. 
See, I just said before, I'm getting ahead of myself, for a long time this Christian warfare has been imagined as being out there or up there. But Christians have historically understood our warfare to be on three levels. The world, the flesh, and the devil. I don't know why they've always put it in that order. Because it's actually, more logically, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Okay, this is, this is me being a bit smart with words. We have an internal enemy, stuff that's in, in us, the flesh, human nature, our fallen human nature. And even though we're born of God, we still wrestle with that fallen human nature. Sorry. We have an external enemy, the world, godless human society, with all the values and the philosophies and, and the images and, and the covetousness and the greed that it throws at us every single day, and all the rest, the backbiting and the attitudes. And, and, yeah? We're dealing with that external enemy, which is throwing stuff at us every day of our lives. Just switch on the TV, here it comes. Bang! And we deal with an infernal enemy, the de devil. By the way, the devil doesn't now operate out of hell. He's going to be consigned to a fiery hell by the hand of the Lord in his final judgment. But, uh, you know, the devil doesn't operate out of hell now. That's a very common idea, pretty much fixed in most people's minds. But, you know, hell does not break loose, folks. You know, there's a lot of language that's, that's wrong about hell. But, but Satan is at work in the planet with a great horde of evil spirits. There, there's, there, there are twice as many holy angels as fallen angels, at least. We have that enemy. Let me go through them a bit in a minute here. The flesh. Um, let me just say this along the way. Look, let me say again, spiritual warfare. Most people have thought about we're going to do war in the heavenlies and we're going to get up and cast down and so on. I'm going to show you this morning how even one of the main scriptures people use for that is completely being mishandled, misused. Um, let's deal with these different fields of battle. There's more in my notes, but let's go. See, the flesh... Our being and our appetites is what the King James Version calls flesh so, and, 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 and uses the word lusts. And even in my common Christian, it still uses the word lust. Well, the problem is nowadays lust means sexual appetite. But, um, lust is an, in old English, it's just appetite. You, you, can, you can lust after food, you can lust after drink, you can lust after sleep, you know, because you're hungry for it. You're, you, you know, you've got longing for it. And we have these appetites, and I could have, I looked at some sociology, I thought, that's too deep. Let's just think about some very simple things. That we have an appetite, we have an inward longing for our physical needs to be met. Food, drink, sleep, shelter, clothing. The necessities of life, we, so that we are physically secure. Then we have an appetite for safety from harm. How would we call that in terms of gospel language? We would call that peace that you feel secure. We have an appetite for belonging, for affection, for acceptance, for approval. What does the gospel offer us? The love of God. We have an appetite for pleasure and gratification, to be pleased, to be entertained. But what does the gospel offer us? The joy of the Lord. And we have an appetite for esteem, to be recognized, to be seen as somebody, not to be belittled, but to be honored. What does the gospel talk about? Honor. We long for identity, significance. Those appetites are God-given. God put them into humankind, Adam and Eve. And you'll see that the gospel answers, and I could have done more of this, answers most of our needs very directly. But as those born of God, we Christians, we still carry within ourselves the sin that was begotten in Adam and Eve. We have a propensity to sin, and sin warps every human appetite. In fact, I'd point it out to you this way. When we turned away from God, we stayed twisted inside from then on. So nothing works the way it should. It's twisted. So the human appetite for physical needs becomes twisted into greed and covetousness. And, and, and uh, appetite for belonging, for affection, means we start abusing people and manipulating people and and, and an appetite for joy and pleasure, well, you know where that's got us today in society. 
And, and let me ask you, why is social media if it isn't to get attention and esteem and significance? I want you to see the, I want you to see me here. Hey, hey, I'm here, I'm here. They're feeding their need. Competition for attention. But those things are real appetites. They're not invalid. They're just wrongly being expressed by a godless humanity. We need to recognize how those appetites are rightly uh, supplied to us by the Lord. So we look to him for our food, our shelter. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, that's those things, will be added to you. We find our peace in him, our security in him. We find our love and acceptance in him. We find our joy in him. We find our esteem and honor and dignity. There's nothing more dignified than being a child of God. Nothing. It's the highest honor. A co-heir with Christ. You can't make a bigger one than that. All the pres- some of the head presidents and prime ministers and things around the world, many of them are going to a lost eternity. And yet you and I sitting here this morning, you're a child of God. The world. We saw when we worked through 1 John that John the Apostle repeatedly tells us that we are not of the world. Jesus said it too and John just spins it out for longer in John's Gospel. We're not of the world. We're not to love the world. The world is against us. It's against Christ, against the truth. I'm only going to take a few sentences from 1 John this morning just to remind you of that. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, that's godless human values ideas, philosophies, the way the world works without God. If you love that, the love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust or appetite of the flesh, fallen human nature. The lust of the eyes, this is about covetousness. I see it, I want it. Oh, look at that BMW down there. The pride in one's lifestyle. I mean, dress it up, bling it up. <laughs> Shouldn't have done that, should I? <laughs> Pride in one's lifestyle. I remember going to a wedding and seeing a guy who still had the, 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 uh, the thing on the sleeve of his suit as to who made the suit. Out of it. It's not from the Father, it's from the world. We are so used to that stuff, it seems normal. But John says, that's the world. And you, you can't operate with that world. Because the world is, with all of its appetites, all of its longings, all of its needs, which are invalidly being pursued, is passing away. It's going. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next year. But it's going. It's done. It has the finish date on it. You know, things have a sell-by date, news-by date. The earth, the world of humanity has a sell-by, finish-by date. Time shall be no more. In other words, this age is finished. It's not that it won't be eternal time, but time, this time, this age will finish. The end of the ages. But the one who does God's will lives forever. Time beyond time. We live in an environment called the world which is alien and contrary to us and we're under pressure from it. The godless human society we live in throws things, ideas, demands, expectations at us every day claiming our allegiance and conformity. You must be like us. To which we say, no! In God's name I'm going to live for him. We've got to be careful not to be too concerned about our status in their eyes. And how they view us. Because it really doesn't matter. We're living for a greater purpose. We're serving in our eternal king. And then the third enemy is the devil. There have been only a few times in my life when I have felt personally attacked by the devil. And each of those was a strategic time in my life. The devil usually works through normal channels by using fallen human nature 
and the world. Those are his normal channels. He, he can get a lot done just using what's there already. Doesn't have to, doesn't have to do a full frontal attack and he doesn't have to wake you up in the night choking you around the throat. He can get to you through your TV. He can get to you through your mobile phone. Just by sowing things and letting them run. You know? Here's an idea. Chuck that one in. It runs around the world. See, you invent something like a printing press. And in the first few years of the printing press being... being in, 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 not, was, it was invented by the Chinese centuries before the Westerners did. Remember? In the West, it's used to produce Bibles. It's used to print political leaflets, and it's used to print pornography. Why? We can't use anything that doesn't get warped by us. The internet, same thing. Means of communication. You can preach the gospel on the internet. You can get great stuff on the internet. You can watch great music on the internet. Or you can, well, let's not go there. So, this says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. Let's think about the tactics of the devil for a moment. Let's look at Adam and Eve in the garden. I'm going to read to you Genesis, part of Genesis 3. I'm going to put it up there because it will go too long. Genesis 3 verse 1. After chapters 1 and 2 and the magnificent accounts there, two accounts of creation in seven days, it says now, whoa, whoa, it should be but or something, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say... You can't eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the servant, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said, no, you'll not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. Notice there, appetite of the body, lust of the eyes. Appetite of the eyes. It was already working. And it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. That's pride of life. That's the boastful self-advancement. So those three things that John just wrote about are right here, right in the beginning. Tactics of the enemy. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. What was Adam doing there, standing there all the time? He should have been kicking the serpent to death or something. And he ate it. I must stick to my notes and not preach over this stuff. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The account goes on, God was walking in the cool of the day, calling out, where are you, Adam? Because Adam didn't want to face him. Notice that the devil speaking through the serpent firstly questioned what God had said, then denied the truth of what God had said, and impugned the character of God. He's holding out on you. If you eat that, you'll be like him. He doesn't want the best for you. That's what, I, that's what the devil was saying. Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve believed the devil rather than God. And on that day, we with them became victims instead of victors in the battle. So that's nothing about Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4. Straight out of being baptized in the Jordan, the Holy Spirit descending upon him. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's not a garden. It's what we made it. A wilderness. To be tempted by the devil. After he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. What an understatement that is. Then the tempter approached him and said, same tactics. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, it's written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give His angels orders concerning you. They'll support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Self-advancement. Jesus told him, It's also written, Do not test the Lord your God. So therefore Jesus is God? Because that's what the devil's doing? Got it? 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Because he is the prince of this world. He has some authority. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus told him, go away, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him. And immediately angels came and began to serve him. And I think they served him food the same way that angels fed Elijah. See how the devil appeals to human appetite and human ambition, pride, both in Eden and in the wilderness. You need this, don't you? You'd like that, wouldn't you? See the same deceptions and distractions? The enemy either denies God's word or uses it but twists God's word. He is the liar. liar. From the beginning. He's at work not only through fake philosophies and religions in the world, but also through false teaching in the church, which I fought all my life. He is called in scripture the adversary, the accuser, the deceiver, and that's all he has to do most of the time to score a win. That's all he has to do. He doesn't have to really scare you. You know, he doesn't have to wake you up in the night, he just has to keep feeding in the poison. Deception, distraction accusation. We have this enemy who but for God's providence and protection would destroy us in a moment, but he's not allowed to. Read the book of Job. But the devil, Satan, is not a counterbalance to God. He has no God-like attributes or qualities. He is not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He doesn't know all the future. He's a creature, and though he's more powerful than human, God was his creator, and God will be his judge. And if that makes it through to a recording, I'll be happy. <laughs> so I need to lay some more foundations before we get into Ephesians 6. The everyday battle for a Christian is not at some distance from us. It's right here. In our hearts and in our minds. And that I, left, I put it in my notes earlier and I'll come back to it now. I'm not saying we don't battle with evil, with the forces of darkness and even... More, bright, more likely with the works of the devil. But if all we think in terms of Christian warfare is the devil, the devil, the devil, listen, this battle is taking on place on three fronts. Evil spirits, the world, and fallen human nature. If we're fighting on one front, guess what happens? You lose. If a general fights one front out of three, he's a loser. And Christians have for decades only been taught to fight one battle. And then, I think incorrectly, the battle starts right here in my now. And in my life. And in my heart. And in my mind. It's in here, not out there or up there. And it's a fight of faith. Let me turn you to 1 Timothy 11. You men of God, run from these things, which is false teaching and false people, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. I'd love to preach that, but it isn't that. Fight the good fight for the faith. Now, he's, he's Paul's addressing a preacher, teacher, and, and he's saying you've got to fight the good fight for the faith. So yes, that is in terms of fighting, fighting false teaching and proclaiming the truth. But it's also you've got to fight for faith. To fight to keep maintaining faith. Take hold of eternal life that you were called to and have made a good confession about in the presence of many witnesses. Our battle is a daily contention for faith. To trust God, to obey God, to honour God. That's the fight that Adam lost. And we rebelled against and rejected God. Adam lost the fight of faith. But Jesus won it, not only in the wilderness, but again and again and again and again. He kept obeying the Father. He kept refusing to be distracted. He kept refusing to be deceived. That's the fight of faith. And it takes place within our hearts and minds. And in Hebrew, those are the same thing. Heart and mind is the same thing. In Greek... It's hearts and minds. So Paul, when he writes one of them, says, in your hearts and minds, because it's to a Greek audience. But in Hebrew thinking, your heart is your mind. They used to think we thought down there, which is okay. <laughs> we do it away sometimes. When the enemy tempted Adam and Eve, it was a fight for faith. Would they trust and obey the Lord? Answer sadly, very sadly, no. 
When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, it was a fight for faith. Would he rely on the Father or use his authority to serve himself? But he refused to do so. He was dependent on his Father. Now, I don't mean faith in the way some people talk about it. I reject the idea of your faith making things happen for you yourself. I reject that entirely. This is faith in God. Have faith in God. Not faith in you, not faith in yourself, not faith in, you know... How, how, how hard you can pray. Faith in him. Yes. Yes. To trust him, to rely upon him, to obey him. We ask of him, receive from him, live by his strength and help. But because it's a fight for faith, it's also a fight for truth because you, your faith has to be built upon truth. What God has said about himself, about his son, about us about who we were outside of Christ Jesus and who we now are in Christ Jesus. These truths are our ground. They're our security. They're the place we stand. We take our stand in the truth and resist. And I, I don't want to get into the armor of God much this morning, but you notice, I just mentioned this one, the shield of faith. We put up a, no, I believe the truth. And the fiery darts of the wicked one, what are they? Thoughts, ideas being thrown at you. That's what they are. What did you think they were? You get, you're going along, you're going along, some crazy ideas come to you. Do you know what you do? No! Not having that one. It's not true. Shield of faith by which you will quench all the fiery arrows of the evil one. I'm preaching all of this rather than a bit of this. And because it's a fight for faith... It is also the battle for the mind. This battle is personal, internal. It's a battle for our mind, our heart, for faith to live and reign there. The fight is over what we believe, how we reason, respond to the thoughts that come to us. That's why, crucially, just this morning I felt the Lord remind me, don't miss verse 10, David, don't rush past it. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, in his vast strength. You've got to know who he is, then who you are. And then go and live it. Oh, I've, I've put down here about the fiery arrows. You can't stop them coming, but you can stop them wounding. Yes. By refusing them, by standing on the truth in faith. Amen. I need to point out your passage now, which is much understood and misused. 2 Corinthians 10. Now I, Paul make a personal appeal to you by the gentleness and graciousness of Christ. You see, Paul isn't aggressive and arrogant. When he, when, when he realizes he's up against some resistance, he humbles himself. He comes in gentler. I who am humble among you in person, but bold towards you when absent. That's what they were saying about him. Or his, his critics were saying about him. I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people. The thing where we're behaving in an unspiritual way, we don't have the Spirit. The Spirit isn't with me. That's what I'm saying. Although we live in the body, now this is the verse that a lot of people know, though we live in the body, we do not wage war in an unspiritual way without the Spirit. Since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. And so God bless them, but preachers and teachers and worship leaders and songwriters say, we're going up into the heavens and we're going to cast down. You know? We're bringing down the strongholds. Anybody heard that stuff? Yeah? We're going to cast down the strongholds. Okay, what are they? What are they? Next verse. We demolish arguments and every high-minded thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God taking every thought captive to Christ. Three words there. What are they? They're all about the mind. Arguments, high-minded things, knowledge of God, every thought. It's more than three, miscounted. There's no mention of demons there. It just isn't there. So what some people talk about spiritual warfare is, 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 is like a fairy tale. It's not what Scripture says. The battle is for their minds. For wrong thinking to be cast down. For strongholds and prejudices that keep us from acknowledging the truth and living in the truth. For those to be brought low. And Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians in the latter chapters, defending his apostolic 
influence and authority towards the Corinthians because he says you've got some super apostles who are coming in here to impress you. And he talks, writes about them scathingly. And he says, but you, you've only got one father-in-law. That was me. I, you know, I brought you together. I, I saw you through, through your conversion. And, what, you know? and so he's appealing to them. And he's appealing to, you know, don't, don't, am I not the person who tells you the truth? These people are trying to mislead you. So he's fighting for the way they think. And he's fighting that they don't believe some of the things they've been told by false teachers. It's the fight of faith. It's the battle for the mind. And the strongholds in this scripture have nothing to do with something out there, up there. They are strongholds in the hearts and minds of people. That's the context, and context is king. You can take any sentence from scripture or any literature out of context, and you can pin it like, anybody remember pin the tail to the donkey? Or parlor game? You put a blindfold on, they turn you around, they give you... A tail with a drawing pin, and you've got to find the donkey which someone's holding up on a board, and you've got to pin the tail on the donkey. You know, people take a verse, a sentence of scripture, and they go and pin it on somewhere donkey where it never belonged. <laughs> and they think that's okay, you can use scripture. Wait, no, you can't. It makes sense. It has reason to it. There's a, you know, it it has a. Even the chapters and verse markings are put in wrongly in many places. They're not inspired. When you just read it through, you go, oh, wow, I never saw that before. No, because you never read it through before. <laughs> uh, let me say again, some people are readers of the Bible rather than readers of the Bible. I didn't read verse 5. We demolish arguments. I did, yes. Once your obedience be confirmed. People have read the scripture and preached and sung about going up to the high places and demolishing strongholds, but that's not what it says. 2 Corinthians 10 does not teach a battle in the heavenlies, it teaches about a battle in our hearts. The strongholds are not up in heavenly places in the atmosphere, but in the hearts and minds of people. They're not out there, they're in here. Your heart and mind is a battlefield. Let me just take a straw poll. Anybody, any of us would like to admit that, that there's a battle going on inside us most of the time? See, Romans 7. Yeah. But the Lord clearly wants us to become those who overcome. Talking with Joe before the service this morning, how he, he picked up on John Glass saying Jesus was tempted, quoting Hebrews, Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are without sin. And uh, I, I was saying to Joe that John Piper said Jesus was stretched in a be way beyond anything we can imagine. We all would have a breaking point if the Lord allowed us to be tempted, 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 pressure, pressure, pressure. There would be a point at which we would snap like an elastic band that's been pulled too far. But Jesus was stretched to a limit we cannot imagine and never was overcome. He shone into the darkness and the darkness did not overcome him. Wow. And therefore he's able to strengthen and comfort us in our trials, in our temptations. We fight the fight for faith again and again. But I, I, I felt we needed to put a few things in place ready to go on from here because I'm probably not teaching this subject because you've previously heard it. I thought I was going to preach a long time and I'm nearly finished. Stand in the strength of the Lord. We'll come back to this in two weeks' time. Stand in the strength of the Lord. I'll talk about the strength of the Lord in two weeks' time. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Making warfare as a Christian is not about how aggressive you get. When we talk about Ephesians 6.18, about prayer, people say, when I have some warfare prayer, my brother, my sister, every prayer is a warfare prayer. When you pray, very simply, earnestly, honestly, Father in heaven, your name be honored. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. You are fighting a battle, praying that prayer. It's not about how aggressive you get or how loud you get. We're going to stop the heavens. Do it if you want to. Do you think, do you think that impresses somebody? 
God, demons, us, I, you know, I mean, go ahead. But every prayer, I mean, there's lots of, when we get to talking about prayer, you know, every battle is won on our knees, says one famous saying. And I do believe that Paul just didn't have an analogy to put to prayer. Sort of the spirit kind of, how do I describe prayer? So he just talks as praying. It's the same passage, the same context. How we get through, how we overcome is with truth and with prayer. So that we stand. Now, I'm joking with Andy and Joe that men often don't stand, they do this. <laughs> but they need an MLP, which is not a member of parliament, whatever it is. This is a, a man's leaning post. <laughs> there are churches that put kind of big, big shelves around the edges of rooms so men can stand against the wall. <laughs> stand is repeated three times in Scripture. Now, soldiers sometimes stand in different ways. They stand as a sentry, you know, stand to attention, stand as a sentry, or they stand ready. Now, stand ready is like, like just kind of, this is standing ready. Because I'll tell you this, if you're not taking the battle out, it's coming in. You're going to come under pressure, you're going to come under the conflict with the flesh and the devil and with the world. You don't ask for it, it's there. So you have to have a ready mentality. I'm ready. Stand. It's not stand in some pose. It's stand ready to fight. I'm, I'm sorry about all this kind of violent language, but that's what the Bible has. You know, I mean, next, next time I preach, I want to talk about our God and our Lord Jesus being a conquering warrior. Be strong in his vast strength. Hey, it's just, just, it, it isn't just that he's got the strength. He's shown us he's got the strength. He's defeated every power of darkness. It's repeated here. Stand ready, stand prepared, ready to fight. And some days, Paul says further on, some days the battle is so tough you can't make any progress, you can't seem to win. But even if you can't kind of win through that day, you don't refuse, you just stand. If you can't go forwards, you, you refuse to go backwards. You know, we sing it sometimes, no turning back, no turning back. The most dangerous thing to do on a battlefield is to turn your back and run. You're no longer a fighter, you're a target. And the armour, the shield, the shields in front of you, the breastplate, doesn't talk about a backplate, it talks about a breastplate. You are safer engaging than running. <laughs> Adam was defeated in the battle of the faith, but our Lord Jesus won that fight to the wilderness and went on to win and win and win again. So that he could even delegate to the 12 or the 72, here, I give you authority, I give you power. You go out there, preach the gospel and serve the sick and minister to the poor and you will overcome all the works of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. You can tread on scorps and scorpions and snakes and and they came back and said, even the demons obeyed us. He says, I saw heaven, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. <laughs> I saw the beginning of all this. You know, it's like, of course we've got authority over it. I gave you authority. Yeah. They, they're forgetting who he is. You know? He said, he said, when Satan was kicked out of heaven, I was there. Finally, at the cross. It's the context of Colossians 2. Let me read from verse 13. I've only put 15 there. When you were dead, this is very parallel to Ephesians 2. When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's physical body, real body, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt which, with its obligations. That's, I think Paul's talking about the law there that was against us and opposed to us. And he's taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by him. Now, 
If you could have stood at Golgotha that day, you'd have seen a naked man hanging in agony, drenched with blood, dying on a crucifix. But what was happening was something altogether wonderfully different. Jesus was overcoming in the cross all the works and powers of darkness. When the darkness came over, that was a symbol of something that was happening. In that time, he wrestled through, fought through. So that when the hour came for him to deliver up his spirit to the Father, he cried not as a whimper, not with a gasp, but with a loud shout, It is finished. Some people say Jesus was defeated on the cross and won in the resurrection. No, it says here, he defeated the powers of darkness, the rulers and authorities. And Jesus was hanging, the Romans would think, in shame, a naked man on a cross. He disgraced the demonic forces. He put them to shame in the cross and has triumphed over them. God has triumphed over them through Jesus. Jesus is already defeated. His time is running out. Jesus is our conquering warrior. His final victory will yet be displayed at the end of the age when he appears to judge the world. But we, right now, we do not fight from our own strength. Well, I don't feel very strong. Fine. (laughs) It's all right. If you're less impressed with yourself, that might be helpful, actually. Some people are so far impressed with themselves, they never get any help from God. They don't think they need it. Jesus said, I didn't come for the, for the well, I came for the sick. I, you know, if you don't know you're real, Dr. Jesus can't do much for you. But if you know that you're needy, he can really help you. We don't fight for our own strength, but we're strengthened by the Lord. It's already completely won for us. It's not a matter of our strength. It's his vast strength that's available to us. We're going to do some more in coming weeks about this warfare, this battle. But fix this in your minds. The Lord Jesus is our captain. He's already gone before us and won for us. We're not alone. We have a captain and we have comrades. And because the Lord Jesus is with us by the Spirit, when you go to your place of work tomorrow, sorry about the reminder there, but when you, when you go to your place of work tomorrow, Jesus, your captain, is right there with you. Yeah. And when you feel beaten up and wounded, I remember a word of a prophetic word was that just reduced me to tears. It was actually a, 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 someone spoke in tongues, someone interpreted, but it, it came out like this: you know, Jesus, your captain, doesn't doesn't disregard wounded soldiers. He comes and raises them up again by his hand. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Lord. See, it's not about. Well, I didn't win this week. You got another day, and another day, and another week. And actually, Jesus said, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Remember it for the King James. Sufficient unto the day. Just get through a day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Live in the now, as John was saying last week. Live in the now. Get through today. And at the end of the day, you can say, ah, Pretty much, Lord, I, I, I feel you helped me and I, I got through today and thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. Have another one tomorrow. Score a win today. Isn't that how people deal with addictions? Isn't that how people deal with, with, with anything that needs to change in their lives? Like maybe dieting? You live one day at a time. Sufficient to today. And God will give you fresh grace for today, for each day. And your battle is a daily battle and God can help you to be not a victim but a victor day by day by day. And that, I, I'm fighting for your faith. Do you understand that this morning? I'm fighting for your faith. Fighting so that you see it, you get it, and you're able to go and do it. To be armored up and equipped by the Holy Spirit. Knowing how to handle the truth, knowing how to pray effectively, which, is nothing, which has nothing to do with aggression and assertion. And find God's help to do real life His way. Let's get over this making spiritual warfare something that's out there, up there, somewhere else. It starts right here. With how I get through daily life by the help and strength of God. Maybe someone here today 
You haven't even started. Oh, by the way, I mentioned comrades here. This is why fellowship together, having groups of people to gather as friends, whether it's for coffee or in a small group or whatever, you know, you don't just have a natter. Make sure you're strengthening one another's faith. Because we are all engaged in the same fight for faith. Yes. To stay on track, to stay focused, to stay obedient and submissive and reliant upon God, not just desperately, sometimes it's like that, but confidently too. Being assured that he's with you and will help you. We need one another in that too. Paul says that he was strengthened by their faith when he went to some of the churches. You've strengthened me by your faith. But this, this, this amazing apostle, you know, the greatest theologian the church has ever had. And he says, you, thank you for your prayers. you strengthened me. What? We need comrades. We need Christian friends who will strengthen our hands and our knees in prayer and our hands to fight. Don't neglect fellowship, people. Make time in your week, make time in your diary to fellowship with Christians, because we are in a battle. Yes. But we're not alone in the battle. No. Value those times of refreshing yes. and encouragement. Thank you, Make the most of them. I was going to say, maybe this morning, this is all new to you, you think, what is the planet is this guy on? Well, it starts with this, that Jesus did go to the cross. So that by his death, and then his victory being demonstrated in his resurrection, he might be the one who, through the good news of his life and death and resurrection, the gospel, the good news, might bring all the answers to our deepest human needs. The gospel meets our needs. Jesus meets our needs. Amen. The things the world misuses because we're warped by sin. Jesus straightens out and fixes us and supplies us. So, I, yes, I do say the gospel is the answer to everything. I like to say it this way Jesus is the answer. What was your question? Yes. <laughs> Jesus is the answer to every deep human need. And therefore, He is, as we sometimes think, all we need. Everything I need is in you. We're good at singing though, aren't we? Everything I need is in you. Jesus, through the gospel, meets all our needs. Physical, emotional, intellectual, identity, significance, love, affection. Maybe this morning you have never committed yourself to follow him. You never received him into your life as king and savior. Take a moment now while we pray. And say, Lord Jesus, it's time I got started. It's time I turned to you with all my heart. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you and bless you. We've sung our songs about your greatness and your victory, Lord Jesus. One of the key reasons we do need to sing those songs and we do need to say these things is because we so need you to strengthen us for this daily battle in our minds and hearts, for faith, that we believe you. We don't do another Adam and Eve. We believe you and trust you and rely upon you and obey you. We look for that sense of not us patting ourselves on the back, but the, yeah. the kind of hand of the Lord falling on our shoulders and saying, well done. Well done. And I pray that week by week, Lord, you'll help me to fight for the faith of my friends. So we understand these things and we know how to be equipped. We know how to fight. And we know how to win. Prepare our hearts, Lord. Prepare our hearts to receive more and more from you in these coming weeks. And I pray that you'll help Jack as he finishes off this week preparing the sermon for next Sunday.
You are a great saviour, Lord Jesus, a conquering warrior. There are some scary pictures of you in the scriptures. Some of us might prefer talking about you as the lamb than the lion, but boy, Lord, you've only got a roar in your enemy's room. Fix these things in our heart, your greatness, your power, and that it actually is extended, available to us if we will call upon you and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, that's the beginning. <laughs> We're going to break bread together this morning. And uh, some people have been organized, I think, to come and help us with that. Yep. Two people over here, two people over on the other side of the room. And as we do this, we'll put some music on. And we're here to pray with anybody who'd like us to pray with you and for you this morning. Happy to do that. Be around these next few minutes. And uh, I'm sorry that I'm, you know, I can't give you all the answers in one go on this topic. Part of me is kind of itching to do it, but we'd be here till tea time or more. So it'll be like, you know, five, six weeks until we get through this whole kind of next section of Ephesians. Don't ask me what we're doing after Ephesians. I'm not even thinking about it. Anymore. But you are one. <laughs> not much. Not much. All right. Let's stand up and move around. You can take this back to your seats. Sit and pray. Talk with someone. Encourage them. Thank the Lord Jesus together for... His great victory, this, this, this great win that he had through his life and through his death and in the resurrection so that he can really offer us all the help we need today because he's already won it. Amen.